You're listening to NFT 365, the first daily podcast on NFTs with your host, Fanzo, talking crypto, blockchain, Web3, non-fungible tokens, metaverse, and what the f*** is a non-fungible token? We'll get to that. It's time for today's episode of NFT 365, the only daily NFT podcast minting an NFT every day for 365 days. Powered by the ADHD coin at rally.io, here's your host and digital futurist, the ADHD superpowered Brian Fenzo. This show is not financial advice, so do your own damn research. What's up, friends? Welcome back to another episode of NFT 365. And, you know, it's it's such a, a you know powerful you know aspect of NFTs that I just wanted to kind of jump into immediately. And part of the thing that I think is so powerful when it comes to NFTs and what's possible is really the kind of like onboarding process of possibilities, and let me explain what I mean by onboarding, uh, you know, possibilities. And I want you to think about this, you know, from your first experience or exposure to NFTs. And and maybe it's because I surround myself with a lot of uh, marketers, creators, um, storytellers. But I, I think this is a, a, a more common uh, trend, uh, no matter what your background uh, is. And maybe I'm wrong. We all know I'm not afraid to admit <laughs> that I don't know everything and I am far from perfect. But the the thing I wanted to kind of tap into is that, you know, for me, you know, I get on stages now and I get to talk about, you know, NFTs and Web3. And of course, with this podcast, I get to welcome in so many new, amazing humans that could kind of discover this space. But more so than any other technology that I've ever really kind of embraced or leveraged or uh, kind of focused on. A lot of the aha goes immediately to, oh my goodness, I could create an NFT for dot, 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 dot. What I mean by that is, I think oftentimes, you know, I'll use live streaming, for example. Live streaming, you know, for most know that was something I did. Uh, I helped launch uh, a lot of brands into their very first uh, live video. IBM, Dell, Samsung, uh, SAP, the Super Bowl. Um, I was, you know, very blessed to be able to work with those brands to do their very first Facebook Live or the very first Periscope. But when I would introduce like the power of live video, and, and I do believe live video, especially from a participata- participation content uh, side of the house, I do believe live video is one of the, the great equalizers. You know, it allows people to uh, you know, look you in your digital eyeballs. But when I would uh, you know, work with brands or talk on, on stages about live video, most of people, like kind of their first examples or use cases would be as a consumer they were like oh you know what yeah i do see where you know live video has impacted me there or yeah you're right you know what i i do need to look for more people that you know i can consume their live video content but a lot of people weren't immediately jumping to the stage of hey like what could i live stream and maybe that's a little bit because you know video um is you know one of those things that, you know, I, I've made this argument for a while, you know, people talk about, you know, more people are scared uh, about public speaking uh, than they are about death, which to me is just a wild statistic, uh, especially as a public speaker uh, and someone that uh, isn't a huge fan of talking about death. But, um, 
but you know, I actually think li- I think video as a whole is something that scares a lot of people, and I think partially because we have like you know our expectations, uh, I believe, are oftentimes too set in the in really the concept of of TV and unrealistic expectations. But I digress. the The point that I wanted to kind of just make and like what excites me or how I kind of think about this is that you know in the case of like live video, like there's like, Hey, okay. I had to almost get people to see like, Hey Brian, I understand the power of live video, but I'm probably not going to go live myself. Right. So like a lot of my work, you know, as a futurist, as a change evangelist, um, as someone that like, you know, really strives to help people shift their perspective and try new things. Oftentimes my, you know, it would lead to press the damn button. I want you to get started. But in this NFT space, and, and I think it's interesting that, a lot of times uh, it, co- it goes immediately to, oh, you know what? I could see you launching my own NFT to do whatever it may be. But th- it's funny because I, I talk about, you know, for sure, I, and I 100% believe this, that we, we need to make sure to be a, a collector before we are a creator. And part of the reason I believe that is there are, there are some nuances, there are some you know, aspects of culture. There's also just an under, you know, kind of like a, an understanding of, of some of the, um, you know, I would say we could say, we, you know, an understanding of some of the, uh, you know, the basics or the, the, the hard truths of, uh, of this space when it comes to, you know, what, what are some of like the, you know, ex, you know, crypto, the role of cryptocurrency and, and, you know, understanding the mint experience and the reveal experience and what is the secondary market. But I wanted to address a couple of the questions that I've been getting a lot lately from people that have either done their own research as far as being a coming a collector and still want to be a creator. And from those that are kind of in that space where they're like, okay, Brian, sure, I should be a collector, but the things I really want to understand are, and I will tell you that the probably one of the questions I get uh, the most, and I think it's usually because is questions coming from a place of not understanding the the space enough. And I'm not saying that in a bad way. I'm just saying, you know, the question I get a lot is like, Brian, okay, that makes sense. But like, how do I decide how many NFTs that I create and how much I price them for? And it's okay for some of our listeners. Maybe you've had that same question, right? You have that same thought. And it's interesting because, you know, the whole idea of 10,000, right? The the 10,000 PFP collection, you know, that's just a, it became a, a trend and a norm early on that the, Hey, we're going to, we're going to drop 10,000, um, NFT PFP, pro, uh, PFPs. And I heard Gary Vaynerchuk's talk about this, uh, just the other day, actually on uh, Twitter space. Uh, he was actually on Twitter space with, uh, the founder of psychedelics anonymous Volton. And one of the things that he said was that, you know, his collection for V friends two V two, which I was very blessed uh, to be able to mint. Uh, he said his, you know, you know, they rolled it out at 55,000, um, as the total NFTs. And he said like his whole goal there was a hundred thousand and he didn't end up, you know, kind of pushing forward with that, but he believed he hundred thousand would have worked. But he also talked about like, what if he dropped a, a million piece collection at $20 each, like how impactful would that be? And I thought, you know, that leave it to Gary to kind of like blow my mind a little bit on, you know, just the thought process of, of, you know, scale. And, you know, if we shift one thing, we can, it impacts the other. But I, I would actually say the other thing about this is like, you know, we've seen some collections, 
you know, uh, adopt or adapt um, other versions of around 10,000, right? So, uh, you know, one of my favorite collections, of course, Meta Whips, um, it's, they have 11,000, uh, you know, their full collection, I think is 11,093. Uh, they were, they were a company started in uh, 1993. Of course, my hockey number being 93 made me, you know, love that collection even more. But, um, you know, and then the other ones have done like 8,888 or you know, something around there. But, you know, I think the, the beauty of this space is that if you wanted to drop a collection that has 500, you could do so. If you wanted to be like The Matrix, The Matrix, when Matrix movie rolled out, you know, they dropped 100,000. They were the first 100,000 collection that I had seen kind of mainstream. Um, and they didn't do it on uh, Ethereum. They actually did it on the on Palm on the Palm blockchain, uh, they were kind of focused on being a little bit more uh, economic friendly, uh, you know, environmental friendly, not economic, <laughs> environmentally friendly. Um, but the that question about like, how much do I charge and how many? I'll just say, you know, as a keynote speaker, you know, my, my, I get paid to get on stages and, and deliver, uh, you know, presentations to audiences, you know, everything from, you know, I've done like the Concrete Association, and I've done South by Southwest. I've done Mobile World Congress. I've also done, uh, you know, a pet influencer event where there was more animals in the audience than there were people. And the funny thing about, you know, speaking is like you don't know what, like how much people are willing to pay you until you ask for that amount. But you also, you know, try your best to kind of gauge against others, that, you know, other speakers that are in the space. And there's really no direct equivalent to like, if you've been in this, if you've been speaking this many years, you get, you should be charging this amount of money. Or if your talk is on this topic to this type of audience. But I will say like one of the things that I learned is that there's actually positives and negatives sometimes from underpricing and overpricing. And and most people don't, don't kind of factor this in. And I, and I wanted to share this because I think it's important in our NFT journey. And and this goes into if we're creating a collection ourselves, but also when we're researching a collection or a collection that we're thinking about, we want to buy, uh, you know, as as one of our own, is we have to factor in like what was what was their reasoning for the price, right? Is it because hey, they just think that's the max they could get? Um, and the reason I said that like sometimes there's good and there's bad is that I learned uh, a couple of years ago that you know I finally got. I'm not going to give the name of the company, but I finally got selected to speak at this event that I was really excited about speaking about uh, speaking at. And when I was talking to the event professional after I got off stage, she was like, man, I really wish we would have had you here three years ago when we first had this discussion about you speaking um, at our event. She's like, but, you know, honestly, I just have to give you feedback. She's like, if you would have presented your package at $10,000, uh, for speaking, I probably would have been able to get you hired, but when you offered it at seventy five hundred dollars, it just you just didn't feel like you were on the level of the person that we wanted to put on the main stage. I mean, how crazy is that, right? When you think about it, like it was because because I was actually offering my speaking services at a lower fee. The assumption for like her team and getting me approved was like, oh, we wanted like an A level speaker, not an up and coming speaker, and that's what Brian was. And of course, it could go the opposite, right? There's a couple gigs that I know for a fact that, you know, when I positioned it at $15,000 a, a keynote, uh, that they said, Brian, our budget was really a lot around 11. If you were closer to there, it would have worked. And, and I'm not saying that to flex, you know, you can Google my speaking fee. My speaking fee has been public, um, you know, each year since I started speaking. I'm, I'm big on, you know, transparency and kind of owning uh, the journey. And, you know, and the other part about speaking, 
is there's also kind of like this balance of things that you do for free or for uh, like how I like to say it is I don't ever speak for free, but there are many cases where I speak for no fee. See what I did there? And I think this actually factors into NFTs as well is like if I, you know, I have a chart, uh, as many of you know, I'm kind of into charts. I have a chart where I actually break down like what is the value of this event? And the financial aspect is just one of the, the values that we kind of uh, rank. Uh, of course, it's, it's one of the higher, um, you know, percentaged ones or a higher weighted ones um, because, hey, you got to pay the bills and you have, you know, things uh, that make this whole thing work. But there are other things that say, hey, if, if this person only has a budget for $5,000, what are the things that they can include in that offer that I feel equal, you know, bring that back up, you know, from a value perspective, right? Can, it might be, you know, they're going to include me on an email newsletter um, to their audience, right? They're going to talk about my podcast. Maybe it's going to be the, you know, the other speakers that are going to be on stages with me. I might get FaceTime with a couple other speakers that um, can really do some great things for me because uh, here's a secret. I know people aren't asking for speaking advice, but the secret that uh, that I learned, you know, the the number one way, you know, as a speaker uh, is you know, to kind of grow your business is actually through speaker relationships. I, I firmly believe that speakers get speakers gigs. And in the NFT space, I think there's almost this little, there's a, a beautiful connection where like NFT DGENs or NFT alpha leaders get other NFT leaders whitelists and insider information, right? There's you know, it's such a, an interesting game that we play, and there's a lot of there's a lot of connections to uh, my world and life of a speaker, and and I say all that because when someone asks me like how much they should price their NFTs for, you know, what they I, I believe that question is actually just coming from the wrong the wrong vantage point, right? It's more about okay, what what it would be the the proper price for the mint price of our NFT collection. So that we could attract the right audience and have the right amount of of demand, while at the same time understanding kind of some of the nuances, right? Because much like in my speaking business, like if I see uh, an NFT that is uh, for sale for 0. 0.02 Ethereum, uh, which you know probably be a little bit under a hundred dollars for the most part, I I'm going to do a little bit less research than if I see one that's at 0. 0.08 or 0. 0.25 or Point three, but if I see one at like point three, my first thought is like, oh, someone is someone someone's feeling greedy, or they feel like they are are you know superior, uh, or even you know, let's face it, some NFT projects right now, um, some of the collectives, uh, you know, some of the more you know, I'd say ones that are a little bit more what they would say dynamic, you know, they're they are they're doing like two ETH, three ETH um, prices, even you know, V friends. Uh, you know, was point you know three three five um, Ethereum to to mint uh, V friends too. But I, I say all that because I actually want I actually think of this the other part of this that I don't have as a speaker. You know, as a speaker, one of the things that we learned, you know, I learned kind of the hard way was that you know it's really hard to you know ask for money. Like you know, when I was doing when I was kind of doing virtual events, people were like, Brian, why don't you just accept? Like four thousand uh, dollars as a as a, your virtual presentations price because you could do a lot of them from home, and I would always talk about the idea like how am I going to, you know, continue to build my business online or my uh, my speaking uh, off you know on stages, 
if I, you know, if I'm asking for, you know, $15,000 to speak on a stage, yet I'm willing to give away that same information. And in most cases, more work doing a virtual presentation um, for, you know, for one third of that price. And so for me, a lot of it was um, about, you know, kind of, we were, we were, we were really holding hard to like our commitment to understanding, you know, that, you know, we could really cannibalize and hurt um, the main part of our business, especially because for me, uh, you know, leading into the pandemic, you know, that year um, I was set up for the most speaking gigs that I would have ever had in my uh, entire career. Really my, my speaking business has, was, uh, you know, at its launch point uh, and unfortunately the world shut down. But, you know, with all of that being said, I also recognize that like a lot of times, you know, uh, events, they wouldn't hire me for like back to back years. Now that's not the case all the time. I, I actually kind of make that a little bit of my own mission, uh, where someone can hire me to speak one year and the next year I can host the next year I can be, uh, you know, a, a speaker as well again. Right. And like, because they usually don't want like the same exact speakers year after year. But the reason that like connects so perfectly into this conversation is when we think about, you know, uh, pricing our projects or that question about how many should we even have, like you don't know what's too much until you ask too much. You don't know what's too many until you push the limit to too many. And I think the beauty, much like utility in this space, is that there's nothing stopping you from saying, hey, we're going to roll out a 2,000-piece collection. And if it sells out in 30 seconds, okay, well, now we, we, we might need to think about what is our next rollout? What is phase two? But we also have to recognize that there, like, you know, a lot of this game is supply and demand, but a lot of the the margin, a lot of the value that you can actually, um, you know, add to your project as far as financial reward, can actually happen on the secondary market as well. And I think you know part of the beauty of a of this conversation can be, you know, what if a lower entry point gets more people in, and yet that because there's a, that lower entry point, there's also more for us to gain in the short term, right? And there's also this element of, you know, secondary, you know, if I'm getting 5% off of every secondary sale and the volume of secondary sales is very high because there's a lot of demand uh, and maybe that demand is generated because the price point initially was a little low or maybe the demand, you know, is greater because you, because the low entry point, it got, you know, it allowed people that might've felt like they would never have been able to join your project to be able to be part of your project. Right. And in, and we can, you know, you can also, you know, adjust prices as you go. We also can do things like um, when you want to, you know, kind of change a price, you're like, well, Brian, like if I start out with, you know, my my NFTs at 0.1 Ethereum and they aren't selling like the way I thought they would, like if I drop it to 0.5 and I've already sold uh, a thousand of my 10,000, like what, do, what does that mean for the people that first bought in? Well, you have a couple options there, right? And I think one of the options we've seen a lot is like you can airdrop them another NFT or, or I would believe you should airdrop them two NFTs because you should, it's not about just making up the difference, but it's really about rewarding those that believed in you, you know, out of the jump. And so if you think about that, you can, you can airdrop, you know, everyone that, you know, the first a thousand people that bought it at 0.1 Ethereum, you can airdrop them each two uh, NFTs. So now you have, you know, 3000 of your 10,000 NFTs that are in circulation. Uh, and, and at that point you're then, you know, kind of moving forward at a 0.5 uh, Ethereum price to you know kind of sell out the rest of the collection, 
and, and what that does is ultimately it gives you know yes you'll have less unique holders but it does give you kind of a, a different positioning when it comes to you know now your super fans have an extra nft maybe they're going to airdrop it maybe their likelihood of of maybe diamond handing is now increasing because they know that they have three not just one and they have a chance to you know as the price goes up they might be able to flip it or you know they might be able to kind of um, flip up to maybe the art that they want or some a piece of that and so I say all of that because you know the the pricing piece of this I think is something that I, I just believe that there's too much attention only on the initial sales and there's and this kind of goes like with utility you know I think the beauty uh, of this space is that you know if you just show up and you deliver on what you told people you're going to deliver on in the NFT and the mint that you're um, you're putting out there, you're going to win. Like that's literally the, the game here. Right. And the beauty is that you can over deliver and you can over, you can add utility on top of everything. You can also add different layers of price, you know, price and, and even different components. Right. And I think part of the problem is that we, we kind of overextend on both sides. Right. And I don't think, I think this is a trend that I, I really just don't like is that, you know, we, we sometimes, you know, lean too heavily on taking advantage of those that believe in us in us in the start versus the opposite, right? And and what I mean by that is, there are there are people that say, you know what, I I'm going to focus. You know, once we have a thousand people that jumped in, I want those thousand people to hold five of our NFTs rather than us having to only go outside. And I, and I actually think you know having a strategy for that is important, but there's also something to be said about you know rewarding and you know putting those that were there first. On um, you know increasing their value and their importance, you know, and I'll tell you for those that are you know part of our project, you know, those that are the founders that bought our NFTs at five thousand dollars USD, you know, they will all they will continue to get utility. They will continue to be rewarded as long as I'm doing any NFT projects. Right from now forward, um, I will make sure that they're either getting airdrops or you know they can mint for just for free, just plus gas, or they get you know the early presale. And and part of that's for me is like I, I just think there's nothing more valuable than empowering those super fans. And then on the other question, uh, which you know we're doing a whole episode on this, and, and it's something I think is also you know equally you know important is like you know when we think about supply and demand, right? I, I've you know if you can go back and listen to uh, my Shaquille O'Neal episode, right, where you know Shaquille O'Neal might have one of the largest brands in the world, yet he didn't sell out his ten thousand piece, or I believe his collection was eleven thousand, his eleven thousand piece collection. Um, for over a week, it dropped on, I believe, December 22nd. And it actually wasn't until he did a Twitter space uh, with Gary Vaynerchuk that it actually sold out. And I actually don't think it has anything to do with the numbers or the price. I actually think it's because um, the the education of his audience wasn't there. And that kind of limited, there was a lot of people that were in his comments on multiple channels that saying, hey, I, I want to buy this shack. I just don't know you know, how to pay with my, my credit card or what it, what is required or um, you know, what, what does this all mean? But with that being said is like, that's actually a question I think we should always ask is not like how big is our audience or how many people can we reach or how many, even how many people would be interested in our NFT? The question has to be, what is the, what, you know, what is the education? What is the onboarding? And, you know, what, what are the things that we are going to do that we are going to mitigate some of those things? Because you can have a giant audience and a giant audience without a MetaMask wallet 
is going to be um, a giant audience that is not going to serve you well in the NFT space because they're going to need a wallet and MetaMask happens to be the most popular, right? And um, if there's a giant population of people that you know have bought from you and, and believe in you, yet they believe cryptocurrency is the devil or they believe that NFTs are silly JPEGs, well, you have to kind of come back to this fact is like, how much education am I going to put in front of them? How am I going to kind of push this over, over the kind of the line? And I'll say like, that was the, I mean, that was my number one concern and focus back in the fall when we were, you know, kind of designing our PFP NFT project. And I said, you know, like, I know that I have an amazing audience and I know that, you know, we've grown, you know, my following across social media, you know, to a quarter million uh, followers. I know that, you know, when I, you know, I've worked on, uh, you know, with brands and, and things that I've done, that there are people that are in my audience that are, would crave and, and, and believe in me. And we, we have our creator coin, but I also recognized, and I think it had a lot to do with the creator coin, you know, our ADHD coin. The thing that I realized was like, there were people that were just going to blindly believe in me as a, a founder and as an early adopter. But those are people that probably more than likely would buy a couple of the NFTs and then not use, not check in, not go in the discord and, you know, check back in in a couple of years and say, Hey, Brian, were they worth anything? You know, I, I bet on you. But the, there's a whole other side of the audience that is like, I don't understand this. This makes no sense, Brian. And, and there's even an, uh, a group that might be like, Brian, you're an early adopter everywhere. Like, I'm a, I don't really like NFTs or understand them, so I'm just going to uh, wait until the next you know shiny object that you jump on. And the funny part about it is, like, there's no one that can say that now. They, there's no one that can look back at me and say, Brian, this is this must be your next shiny object to jump on because, I mean, how many episodes have we done in a row? Like almost six months in a row, every single day, buying an NFT, creating a podcast, educating, showing up online on Twitter spaces, on Instagram stories. And so back to this whole question that, that we kind of kicked off this episode on, you know, the price that I price point, I think we have to think about this way deeper than we, we should than we have in the past, right? Think about it from the secondary market. Think about it from what is the liquidity of your target audience? How many is your audience? Is this going to be their first NFT? Is this going to be their 10th NFT? Or is this going to be their hundredth of NFTs where they are, you know, the same people that are thinking about buying uh, Board Ape Yacht Club land are the same people that are going to be buying your NFTs? And yes, there's going to be a, a, a cross section and an overlap. But without understanding those nuances, you really are going to have um, some you know, problems when it comes to understanding, like, how are you bringing people into um, your community? How is that price kind of accepted on the outside? Uh, and even, you know, the funny thing is, like, when I give the prices here on the podcast, I, I know some people that are like, Brian always talks about it like in ETH. Well, partially, it's actually because of the, the stigma or kind of like that impression, right? If I would say, well, you know, you could price it at about $180 per NFT or $1,200. That is like, I mean, that's a massive difference in, in price. Let's not, let's, let's not beat around the bush, right? And I think, so when I say 0 0.02 or 0 0.15 uh, Ethereum or 0 0.2 Ethereum, for me that, you know, it's more about like kind of like understanding like kind of the differences in, in, in crypto. And we also know that there's like, if you are in crypto, you don't often look at things from a USDC perspective. You look at them from a uh, a crypto perspective, right? And in some cases, that's kind of forced us to this like weird requirement of how much things are. Um, but it's also, um, and we might see a level setting of that in the near future. But I think that the other part of this that I think is equally important is that the actual total number of supply 
is also something that you should factor in, right? So like both of these things can drive each other. And I am a big proponent for the, you know, not only the slow burn, but the slow rollout, the idea of rolling out uh, a smaller initial initial collection and, you know, doing your best to sell that amount. And then once you sell that amount, listening and learning from that audience, understanding the utility that they find valuable, helping empowering them saying, hey, we're going to drop our next drop. But because you, you know, were in there at our first one, these are the things we're going to do for you. And these are the things we want help with. Because really, you know, if you sell a thousand, um, you know, that first day and over the next month, you're, in, you're over delivering for that a thousand people. When you go to drop your next, let's say, 3,000 NFTs, well, guess what? You now have an army of a thousand people that have already seen that you're delivering, that have already found value, that already realized that you value them, that are going to help you market, help you sell, right? It's not like this is, this is not like rocket science, right? This is, you know, marketing at, a, at its finest, right? And I, I think there is also something to be said about having that finite supply because FOMO is legit, right? And, you know, I mean, I, I think about the iPhone, right? I, I was that kid, that kid, I still do it myself, so we can't say I was a kid, but I was that guy that, you know, waited outside of Apple stores overnight to get my iPhone. It probably doesn't surprise most of you, but I will say like, I always liked the colors that were the rarest. And I also like colors that, you know, I'm, I'm, I like a bold things, right? So I like, uh, you know, my current iPhone is the, the pink, uh, you know, or the rose color gold, uh, you know, iPhone, but there's also, there was a limited amount of that color. Right. And so for, for some people, you know, they would go down and they're like, you know what? I was thinking about getting the same black one I always get, but there's only a limited amount of the pink rose gold. You know what? I'm just going to get the rose gold versus me that was showing up there overnight being like, you know what? Rose gold is the one I want. Cause it's my, you know, it's, it's going to stand out and you know, pink's one of my favorite colors. And I want you to think about that in the price point and in the, the supply, right? Because in some cases, I and I felt this. I'm like, oh, there's ten thousand of them. Um, I'll jump in a little bit later, right? And it's not saying that it won't sell out, but I'll jump in a little bit later. Versus like, oh, they're only dropping the first a thousand right now. Like, I better get in now because there's only a thousand spots. And let's face it, when I get into that Discord and I'm in the holder chat, there's only going to be a, a finite amount of people. I don't have to like cut through the noise. And I'm already feeling that in V friends. Funny enough, like. I, I want V friends V1 now more so than I ever did before, ever but before, which is funny because I have a V friends 2 now, but it's because V friends 2, there's 55,000 people that have a V friends 2. There's only 10,000 people that have a V1. And actually there's a lot less than that. There's a lot of people that individual holders, I think is in, in the 6,000 range. There's only 6,000 people that hold that V1 NFT of the 10,000 supply. Ooh, now we're thinking. The last thing I'll leave you with is you also have to remember that unlike a lot of other things, I'm not going in there and buying nine iPhones because I, I'm going to hold on to them. Well, some people might. Uh, and, and this is, you know, in the case in the sneaker game, right? The sneaker game, I, I would go in and buy three or four pairs knowing that I could resell two of them and cover my costs of the other two. And in NFTs, that's a big part of this, right? So it's not even about like, hey, do I have 10,000 potential customers? But is, you know, what is the value? What is, what is the utility for people that buy more than one? How am I going to reward, incentivize, motivate, inspire the whales? How am I going, you know, and, and you don't want to come across like, you know, that because someone has more money, they have more say, but we also have to recognize 
that if someone is holding more of them, they, there should be, you know, an element or something that is kind of, you know, understanding what, what are they looking for, right? Do they want, uh, you know, a whale status in uh, the Discord? Many of them might not even want people to know that they hold that many. Others might want everyone to know. And so I think, you know, the, the crazy thing about this is that I think a lot of people are looking for an answer in how many and in and what price when they ask me that question. And I just took a 30-minute podcast episode without even answering that question because I do believe it is one of the more important aspects of what we're doing here in NFTs, understanding supply and demand, understanding the educational level of your audience and, and how that onboarding is going to go. What is the percentage of people that are crypto native versus you know new to NFTs that are going to be in your, your project? What are your, your initial goals? What's your rollout phase? How are you going to do um, pre-sale whitelist? How are you going to avoid gas wars? How are you thinking about you know everything from you know security to onboarding to um, connecting with the, your existing fans uh, and also reaching the new fans that might uh, you know have just discovered you? And I'm going to talk a little bit more about this over the next month, especially as we uh, start to give you some alpha on our project that I'm you know beyond excited to finally start to put out to the public it's it's been something that i've had to keep in my back pocket for many many months but you know the last thing i'll just say is there is no wrong answer either right the, the, you know and i mean by wrong answer is like you can try things and and, and fail and, and some of the projects that recently that i've been um researching i've actually noticed that some of the founders launched a project and it didn't it didn't have much success and they didn't give up on the project. They're still providing the value that they promised, but they're now kind of adapting that their, those lessons to their next rollout. Then there's also the other side of the house where some people are, are doing kind of the opposite, right? And uh, I think it all just depends on how we look at this as a whole. So with that being said, my friends, you know, this is a fun journey. Uh, I appreciate all of the kind words. I appreciate you coming on this journey with me. And we're going to figure this out together. And if you have more of these type of questions, feel free to jump over into our Discord. It's uh, discord.gg slash ADHD coin. So discord.gg slash ADHD coin. Jump over to the Discord. Let us know your thoughts. Post those questions in there. There's a lot of really smart people, many people that are smarter than me, that can provide feedback, can provide uh, input, and even uh, give you kind of a little bit of that, you know, testing your target market to, to see if what your plan is uh, makes a lot of sense. But until tomorrow, my friends, make it a great day. Cheers. The show is not financial.